Well, if this is your first time with us, we are doing a series called The Story. And what we are trying to do as a church is we're trying to take uh, a good part of this year and we're studying all the way from the book of Genesis in the Bible all the way to Revelation. And what we're doing is we're using this resource here called The Story. And this is a tool that we're using where it puts the Bible in chronological order and it divides the scriptures into 31 chapters. And we're going through a chapter a week. And today we are on chapter chapter 6. Let me ask you a question as we go into this. How many of you love a good road trip? I mean, you just love to go, get in the car and go, you know, even if it's spontaneous, jumping. We love road trips in our family. We love to, Kirsten and I, we love to just jump in the van, bring the kids, and just go on the road. I think we've pretty much hit just about every state. There's a couple we haven't hit yet, but we've been all over the United States in, on road trips, and we love it. How many of you know, as a parent, though, there can be some challenges with a road trip? Have you ever heard your kids on a road trip, and I'm saying this hypothetically because I know every parent, anyone who's ever raised a kid, knows that these come out of kids' mouth, these words, in a, in a road trip. Words like this, Mom, Dad, he's touching me. You ever heard that? Um, she's on my side. Tell her to get over there. Dad, tell him to be quiet. Mom, I'm starving. When are we going to get there? We're never going to get to eat. I'm hungry. I'm starving. We hear that all the time. I'm starving. He hit me. I'm bored. It's hot in here. I'm cold. This is boring. Are we there yet? Don't you love road trips? In chapter 6 of the story, Moses and the Israelites are going to go on a road trip. And if you want to kind of think about it in kind of modern terms, God is going to be their GPS system. He's going to be a, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night guiding their way. Moses is the driver of this caravan and the Israelites are in the back of this caravan and they are doing nothing but whining and complaining and bickering the entire time. That's what this chapter is all about if you've read it already. Now, let me just help you get caught up. Some of you aren't caught up in the story. Let me just kind of tell you, we're talking about these last few weeks about this nation, this promised group of people that God is raising up. We find out they spend about 430 years in Egypt where they grew into a massive population. For part of that time, they were slaves, for a good part of that time. So God calls Moses to go back to Egypt to rescue the Israelites. And Moses goes in, tells Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh says no. And so what happens? God sends plague after plague after plague until Pharaoh relents and he lets the Israelites leave Egypt. They're not gone very long. Pharaoh changes his mind. He chases after them. That's where we read about in the story where God sent them across the Red Sea, but God parted the waters. They went through on dry land. Pharaoh's army was dumb enough to follow them. They got halfway across. The waters come down. The end of Pharaoh's army. And then right after that, they go and they camp out at a place called Mount Sinai. That's where we left them in the story last week. And they stay camped at the base of this mountain for about a year. Now, while they're camped there, they hear God's voice. And it had to have been magnificent. They watch this mountain 
tremble and shake. They describe the things that happened there like smoke coming up out of the top of the mountain, like, like smoke coming out of a fireplace. This is where Moses goes up on the mountain to talk to God, and God gives him the Ten Commandments. And while that's happening, the people of Israel get impatient, and so they collect a bunch of gold, they make an image of a cow, and they worship it, and God's like, listen up, people. If you're going to be my people, and I am going to be your God, none of this can happen anymore. And so God lays out for them three, um, three things. This is what's going to happen. We've got to have some guidelines, and that's the Ten Commandments and, and, and all of the book of Leviticus and all of that. Because we're going to have some Ten Commandments here. You're going to have some guidelines of how to live. You're going to need to provide a place for me to dwell. If you read the chapter, you know, God wanted a place to come down, and they could physically see that when the cloud came over the tabernacle, God was with us. And do you remember from last week, when the cloud was over the tabernacle, they were told to stay put. But when the cloud lifts and leaves, that was their signal to go with God. And then sin must be atoned for. So God created this sacrificial system. If you open your storybooks to page 70, I want to read something for you. This is not scripture. This is not part of the Bible. This is an editor's summary of kind of all that's going on. And I believe it's a good summary to kind of help us set the stage for where we're going today. Let me read it to you briefly. This is the summary on page 70. During the year that the Israelites camped near Mount Sinai, God taught them who he was and, and what he required of them. I am holy, so you are to be holy. God instructed his people to bring specific sacrifices to the tabernacle, burn offerings, grain offerings, fellowship offerings, sin offerings, and guilt offerings. The line of priests was anointed, and an intricate system of animal sacrifices was instituted for the atonement of people's sins. The Hebrews learned God's laws about marriage and divorce, appropriate sexual relations, punishment for murder and robbery, and how to make restitution for wrongs. God desired that his people become compassionate, merciful, and just. The promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was now a reality, and this new nation was to be different so that the entire world would know and worship the one true God, the very source of life and in hope. That's where we are in the story. We've got the basics covered, and the Israelites now, they've got everything that they need to, to leave that place and to move on into what they've been hearing Moses talk about, the promised land. So let's read about that. Page 71 in your story Bibles. This is the same as the book of Numbers, chapter 10, verse 11. So on the 20th day of the second month of the second year, the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle of the covenant law. Then the Israelites set out from the desert of Sinai and traveled from place to place until the cloud came to rest in the desert of Paran. They set out this first time at the Lord's command through Moses. And I've read that and I go, can you just imagine the excitement? I mean, how exciting had this have been for the Israelites? They've been slaves all these years, and now they've been rescued, and they've seen God do all of these things, and finally, it's time to go. I would imagine they were, they were pretty excited, going from slaves to freedom, the fulfillment of God's promise, what he said to Abraham some 650 years earlier, and now it's all coming together. You would think that they would be saying, man, everything is great now. You would think that. 
You would think that in the year at Mount Sinai, they would have learned all the lessons that they needed to learn to be God's people and to be ready for the promised land. You would think that. You, you would think that God had proven himself faithful by this point. And you would think that when they saw the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, that that was enough to let them follow God fully. You would think, but you would be, be wrong. See, this chapter of the story is called Wondering. And that is a perfect title because this road trip from Sinai to the Promised Land was only supposed to take a few weeks, but it ended up taking them 40 years. The Israelites were far from being ready to trust God and to go on into the Promised Land, and they proved it on this road trip. And that's this road trip that you're reading about in chapter six. So they leave Mount Sinai and they are following God's lead. God leads them to where they're supposed to go. And not even three days into this road trip, the whining and the complaining begins. They begin complaining, first of all, about their traveling conditions. They're looking around and they're saying, no bueno on this. This is not good. And this is what we read on page 71 into page 72 of the story. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. And when the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So that place was called Taborah because fire from the Lord had burned among them. Boy, I remember many a road trips as a kid going on with our family. I've got several older sisters who are, are quite a few years older than me. And then I have a brother. He and I are only 18 months apart in age. So practically twins, highly competitive and all of that. And so I remember road trips with just me and my brother and, and my parents. And I remember whining and complaining on those trips. What did we do parents before the invention of the portable DVD player? Because whoever invented that, I would like to shake their hand one day. And what do we do before smartphones and, and, and tablets and things? I, I don't know. I guess back in the day, it was just entertaining ourselves. We just have to figure it out. And there are many of those road trips where my brother and I would get on each other's nerves and say all the things that we already talked about. And my father would say something like this. And I believe there's not a father in the world that has not said this at one time in his life. Do I need to pull over this car? <laughs> Don't make me pull over this car. How many of you dads have ever said that? You can be on, how many of you said it on your way to church today? Okay, <laughs> to your wives. No, I'm kidding, no, I'm just kidding. No, I'm, I'm joking. You know what? I mean, it, we've said those things and, and this is kind of what God is doing right here. He's like, don't make me pull over this, this caravan. And so he sends this, this fire. And it had to have been absolutely terrifying as it started to consume the outskirts of, of the camp. This is kind of like God sending a warning shot across the bow saying, don't mess with me. This is not how you're going to be. I'm not putting up with this. And so they're complaining about the traveling conditions. But... They didn't get the hint because the next thing that the Israelites are going to start complaining about is they're going to start complaining about the food, the food. Look, look at page 72. 
Um, you can read along with me in the NIV. I'm actually going to read this part from Eugene Peterson's The Message because I love how he captures it in his paraphrase of these few verses. So he says, the riffraff, and if you're following along in your story Bible, it, it begins with the rabble. But Eugene Peterson says, the riffraff among the people had a craving, and soon they had the people of Israel whining. Why can't we have meat? We ate fish in Egypt and got it for free. To say nothing of the cucumbers and melons, the leeks and onions and garlic. But nothing tastes good out here. All we get is manna, manna, manna. And it's hard not to read that and say, man, what a bunch of crybabies. But in reality, this is where, you know, I talked to you a few weeks ago about I, I kind of stopped being hard on people in the Bible. Because in reality, if I was probably one of the Israelites and I was on that road trip, I'd probably be whining about the food too. That was the environment that they were in. If you look on page 72, it keeps going. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard when you, were, when you wailed, if only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Basically, most saying God heard that. Now the Lord will give you meat, and, and I underline this part, and you will eat it. Okay? God will give you meat, and you will eat it. It's almost like God takes on this parental role right here. He's like, no, you will eat it. This is what you, you're going to eat it right now. And so the Lord will give you meat, and you will eat it, and you will not eat it for just one day or two days or five, ten, or twenty, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? The Bible says that God caused a wind to blow in quail from the sea. Quail was everywhere. And the Bible says that the quail were everywhere so much that it went two cubits deep, which we know is equivalent to three feet three feet deep of, of quail. So they complained about the conditions, they complained about the food, and then they began to complain about their leader, Moses. About their leader. Can you imagine, of all the things to complain, they begin to complain about Moses. And even Moses' own family begins to complain, and they begin to say things like this. Well, why does God only talk to Moses? Why can't he talk through us? This isn't right. And it's at this point in the story that I begin to feel real sorry for Moses. I don't know if you had that feeling, but I begin to feel sorry for Moses. He was called to a very difficult assignment. The last year has probably been one of the most painful years of his entire life. And now they're just a few short miles away from the promised land and the people aren't happy. All they're doing is complaining about everything. And now Moses is even, even his own family is complaining about him. Is it any wonder on multiple occasions in the story, and then if you read the rest of the Bible, he says the same things too, why he just says this, God, just kill me now. Just kill me now because death would be better than this. This is the agony that Moses is in. And here's the problem. Here's the problem as you read this. That even after everything the Israelites had seen in the last year, they still lacked the faith to trust God. They still lacked the faith to follow him. As a whole group, they didn't 
trust God. And that reminds me of something very real, very true that we pick up all throughout the pages of the Bible. It reminds me that God can and he will do so much for you, but he won't force you into faith. Do you realize that? God will do so much for you. He wants to do a lot for you, but he won't make you love him. He won't make you believe in him. He won't make you put your faith in him. He won't do it. That's our choice. And a lot of people today, I think, are like the Israelites of Moses' day. They've got all the evidence in front of them. They've got every reason in the world to have this incredible faith in God, to have this awesome relationship with God. Yet despite everything they've seen and everything they know, there is a severe lack of faith on their part. There comes a point in every single person's life. Many of us have reached that point and already crossed over. Some of us maybe are at that point right now. But there does come a point in everyone's life where you say, I have seen enough, I have heard enough, I'm all in, I'm going with God. That, that's the point where, where I would hope everybody would get to and cross it. I've seen enough, I've heard enough, I believe it. I'm a child of God. But that's not where the Israelites are at. They are not there by a long shot. Turn over to page 74 because it gets worse. Can you imagine it getting worse? It gets worse. On page 74, we're going to read about the ultimate showing of lack of faith in God. The Israelites had camped in the desert of, of Paran, also known as Kadesh. This is not far from the promised land, I mean like it is in shot. They can see it. And on page 74, this is what happens. This is the equivalent of Numbers chapter 13, verse one. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan. That was another name for the promised land, which I'm giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So there were 12 men that Moses sent out into the promised land. 12 men, one guy from every tribe of Israel, and they were to go in there for 40 days, okay? Now, if you're somebody that likes to look at maps, you can open to the front cover of your storybook, and you'll see a map, and you'll see on there, Kadesh, this is where they are. This will kind of give you just a little bit of a snapshot of where they're at in the world, okay? They're getting ready to go in the promised land, and they're going to go for 40 days, 12 guys. And on page 75, this is what happened. They came back to Moses. This is after that 40 days. And they came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and the whole assembly and they showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. Here's the fruit. And the Bible tells us that they brought back this, this, this whole patch of grapes. It was so big that they had to kind of wrap it and drape it over a pole and they had to kind of carry it. And like, look at these grapes that we're bringing back from the promised land. It is. Now up to this point, these guys that went into the promised land, they had no practical knowledge of the, of the promise. They had what Moses told them, but they'd been slaves their whole lives. And so this concept of the promised land, they go in there and their eyes had to have been like this. 
We've never seen anything like this. This land is so fertile. There are so many great things here. Look at these grapes. And you would think that after they see all of that, they'd be like, wow, we finally made it. All we got to do is go over there and make it our home. But they were not done reporting. Look at page 75. But the people, okay, they're eating grapes. This is awesome. But the people who live there, they're powerful. And the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. A lot, of, a lot of people wonder who those people are. I'll tell you what they are. They're the Shaquille O'Neal's of the Bible world, okay? They're big guys. And just like that, the wind that was in their sails is gone. Just like that, this excitement about where they're going to call home is gone. And it's at this moment right here, I would say that this is the, the most pivotal moment in the history of Israel up to this point. It's this moment where they had the decision to make, trust God, forge ahead, or turn around and cower and with, in lack of faith. And here's what they did on page 75. Then Caleb, he was one of the twelve. He silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. Good for you, Caleb. You're standing all by yourself. Caleb's the hero in the story, but he's alone. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack these people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explore devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak from the Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same to them. In other words, we're like, we're just puny little people. And they're huge. This is the same group of people who watched God crush Pharaoh's army just a little bit over a year ago, and they didn't even have to lift a finger to, to do it. These are the people who followed God in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. These are the people that God provided all the manna they could eat and all the quail they could eat. All of it was provided by God, but no. In their minds, God was not big enough. God is not powerful enough to do this. And friends, let me just tell you something. If we ever think that God can't, God won't, he's not strong enough, we are in the wrong. And that's where they're at. Look at page 76 of the story. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in the wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. We all face moments in life that are very similar to this. Fear and dread, they set in and we wonder, will God really deliver us? Will God really come through for us? Is God really 
powerful enough for this, enough to help me? Does he know my need? Does he get my problem? And it's at this moment of dread, and maybe some of you are there right now. You walked in here, and you, you've got some dread. And there's some things, like, I don't know how I'm going to get across to that, that place. I, I don't know. Does God know where I'm at in life? Does God know what I'm going through? Does he, does he know where I live? Does he know my name? Does, he know when, does God know what's going on? Maybe some of you came in here with that. And it's at that moment of dread when you have to make a decision. And you have to decide, am I going to be like a faithless person? cowardly Israelite who has the promised land in their sight or am I going to be like Caleb who says we can certainly do it and God will go with us and God is powerful enough and he won't let us down where where are you going to be because that's the decision that's facing some of you right now here's a question why did God send these 12 guys into the promised land to begin with did you ever think about that why would he do that Was it to see how big the people were? Was it to see how awesome the land was? Doesn't God already know these things? Why did he send them in there? Was it so like, hey, so you can find out what it's like? Is that that why? No, of course not. God sent these explorers into the promised land, I believe for one reason, so they could come back to the people and say this, the land is, is everything that God told us that it was. I truly believe God wanted these 12 guys to come back and say, it is awesome. It is everything that God said it was. And it's our turn to just go over there and take it. This is God's vision for us. And it's fantastic. Let's go. But unfortunately, Caleb and one other person, Joshua, were the only two that could see God's vision for them. It's amazing, these two different perspectives. You had 10 guys that said, nope, we're like little teeny grasshoppers facing giants. And you know what happens when little teeny grasshoppers face giants? There's a lot of grasshopper guts in the wake. That's what they felt. But there was this moment where there were two of them that were like, it's not grasshoppers going against giants. It's giants going against God. And you know what you get in the wake of giants going against God? A lot of giant guts. Because they weren't comparing themselves to the obstacles. They were comparing the obstacles to God and there was no match. And they were able to see God's vision that God was doing something bigger than themselves. That God has an upper story, something we fail to see so often in our own lives because we see ourselves as grasshoppers and we got giants to face. But really, we need to see these giants in comparison to God and there's no comparison at all. We're going to read about this next week, but if you were to fast forward 40 years, that's where the story picks up next week. And you're going to see that now, 40 years later, 40 years of wandering, now God's going to deliver them into the promised land. And the people are like, hey, Joshua, who is their new leader, because Moses is gone, how are we going to do this? How are we going to tackle this powerful city like Jericho? And Joshua's like, you know what God wants you to know? You're not going to have to. He's going to. All you got to do is march around the city and watch God knock these walls down. They obeyed and the walls came down. 
because it's always God versus the giants. It's never the grasshoppers versus the giants. So these 10 explorers came back, said we can't do it. And let me just kind of summarize what happens next. God says, because you didn't believe, because you lack faith, because you didn't trust me, none of you get to go into the promised land. Anybody age 20 and older will not get in. But I'll tell you who will get in. You know all the kids that you thought were going to be taking as plunder? I'm going to let them in. Anybody 20 and younger, they get to go in. So God says, turn around and go back to the desert. And they wander around for 40 years until everybody 20 and older is dead. There are consequences to not trusting God. And if this story tells us anything, it is that. Now, Moses, unfortunately, does not get to go into the promised land either. At the end of his life, fast forward 40 years, God is now going to let the Israelites take possession. Moses, this man who thought he couldn't lead, who didn't think he could talk well, who didn't think he was big enough that God could use him, he delivers kind of a final speech that is a speech for the ages. He stands before the Israelites and he tells them what they must do to be successful. And he says this, you got to love God with all of your heart. You got to obey him if you want to be prosperous in this life. And then he says this, but if you turn away and you disobey him, you will suffer destruction. Here's what Moses said. It's on page 86 of your storybook and we'll conclude with this. Moses said to the people, and I believe this is for us too. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction, Moses said. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your hearts turn away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and cursing. Now pay attention. Now choose life. Here's your choices, people. This is what he's saying to the Israelites. Choose life. Choose life. So that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life. And he will give you many years in the land, he swore, to give to your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, I believe wholeheartedly that the Christian life is a lot like a road trip as well. And I'd like to put things in terms that I can understand. If I'm on this road trip called the Christian life, well, then my GPS system, that's God's deal. Because God can see the beginning and God can see the destination 
even if I can't see all the turns and roads in between. I believe that God's my GPS. God is the owner of the map. God sees the whole thing. And so the choice is very simple for us. Choose life or choose something else. Choose to go on this trip with God or don't. But I believe his words here ring true for us today. If you choose life, you choose God, you trust him, have your faith in him, be a part of his family, this road takes you somewhere great. Takes you right into eternity. So, what are you gonna choose? Let's pray together.